Hello, and welcome to Scanner Today's Let's Talk AI podcast, where you can hear from AI researchers about what's actually going on with AI and what is just clickbait headlines. I am Andrei Krenikov, a third-year PhD student at the Stanford Vision and Learning Lab. I focus mostly on learning algorithms for robotic manipulation in my research. And with me is my co-host... I'm Sharon, a third-year PhD student in the machine learning group working with Andrew Ng. I do research on generative models, improving generalization of neural networks, and applying machine learning to tackling the climate crisis. And we have another set of stories from last week to discuss. Quite an interesting set of diverse topics this week. So we're just going to dive straight in, starting with the first one. Uh, with an article titled ACM calls for governments and businesses to stop using facial recognition. And this was covered in this case by VentureBeat. And this is basically what it sounds like from the title. Uh, the ACM or the Association for Computing Machinery, which is a very large uh, association for uh, professionals working with computers. So this is like programmers, uh, also in some cases computer engineers. So this organization released a statement urging lawmakers to immediately suspend use of facial recognition by businesses and governments. And this was released on June 30th. And if you've listened to the last couple episodes we put out, you might already know why. There's been a lot of stuff going on with facial recognition uh, where there were companies who themselves uh, decided to stop doing it, like IBM and Amazon. And uh, there were statements by the ACLU and the Algorithm of Justice League. And so this statement by the ACM follows on uh, all of those events. Going into the specifics a bit more, uh, this letter actually doesn't call for a permanent ban on facial recognition, but a temporary moratorium until the accuracy standards for race and gender performance, essentially these sensitive uh, the sensitive factors, as well as laws and regulations, can be put in place. So essentially, once we have regulation in place. Yeah, so uh, this is pretty exciting. I think many people working on AI are in ACM or involved in the ACM. And it shows that, I guess, all of this discussion, all these events are making inroads to basically where we are to researchers and engineers and uh, kind of the overall awareness and decision making on this front is becoming more common, which I think is a, definitely a welcome development. Let's hope this is a continuation of a trend um, that will become more and more uh, prominent and, uh, act and widespread. For our next article, uh, it's titled MIT Apologizes Permanently Pulls Offline a Huge Dataset That Taught AI Systems to Use Racist Misogynistic Slurs. A spicy title. So uh, in summary, uh, MIT actually took offline a highly cited data set uh, called 80 Million Tiny Images, which was created in 2008. And this data set uh, trained a lot of AI systems to quote by the article, potentially describe people using racist, misogynistic, and other problematic terms. So training the training data set was used to train models to identify and list people and objects in still images, very similar to ImageNet, 
Um, and it includes uh, images and labels uh, describing the content of those images. Um, and researchers found that thousands of those images were actually labeled with racist slurs uh, for black and Asian people in the database. For example, pictures of black people uh, and monkeys were actually labeled with the N-word. Women in bikinis or holding their children were labeled whores. Uh, and parts of the anatomy uh, labeled with just very, very crude terms, um, and, and et cetera, essentially. So needlessly linking everyday imagery to slurs and offensive language, essentially baking in that prejudice and bias um, into future models is, is bad. It's very, very bad. Um, and so this... This a data set that was collected in 2008 uh, probably was not sifted through uh, very clearly. And if it were, uh, it's definitely not okay now. Yeah, definitely. So this, this happened uh, after this paper actually found these problems in the data set. And this was done by Vinay Prabhu, who's a chief scientist at Unify ID, a privacy startup in Silicon Valley, and also uh, I think Abiba Birhane, I'm not sure how to say that, uh, PhD candidate at University College of Dublin in Ireland, who uh, actually released a paper analyzing this data set and pointing out all these issues. And this is following on a previous event where there was a uh, project titled ImageNet Roulette, which highlighted that in the entire ImageNet dataset, uh, there were also some problematic labels. Um, so I think this is kind of pointing the way for the AI community to be a little more careful about how the how datasets are constructed, how datasets are filtered, and generally what is in them uh, going forward. Yes, this is very, very important and very concerning. And I've definitely looked through the ImageNet database. I haven't seen anything, uh, I guess, offensive, though I've seen things that are definitely incorrect uh, or a little bit inappropriate, actually. Some of the images seem a little bit inappropriate. So, uh, yes, I definitely think we need to be much more careful in curating data sets which um, I believe uh, from last week's episode is what Jan LeCun suggested. Uh, of course, we need to do much more than that, but it does look like the data sets are really off, especially if these are, these are forming the basis of benchmarks that we're building our AI models for and towards. Yeah, and uh, I guess one thing to point out also is that this was created in 2008, this tiny images data set, which was uh, pretty early relative to kind of data sets as a whole. So ImageNet was created around then, and I think it was released something like two, uh, 2006, 2007. And it was pretty much the first data set of its scale. I think it was the first attempt at a data set with you know, millions of images and millions of labels. And it was maybe the first attempt at scaling up to creating such a thing. So they had to sort of make up a procedure and that involved scraping images and uh, crowdsourcing labeling. And hopefully since then, as we have created many, many more new data sets and has become quite common to do for AI development, hopefully sort of learn how to have better best practices and people have realized that you need to be more careful. So part of why this happened might be because of 
this data set being a little bit older and uh, before it was that common to create data sets of this scale. And also I think another silver lining here is that the paper that pointed out the issue in the first place uh, did come out. So there is, ex uh, there is expanding introspection by the community and uh, expanding awareness that these are potential issues. And they quickly after this preprint uh, was released and this paper is titled uh, it's titled Large Image Datasets, a Pyrrhic Win for Computer Vision. Uh, so after that was released on July 1st, very quickly there was this response of pulling down the data set. So it does show that at least the community is trying to look out for these issues and address them as they come up. But uh, to move on to a slightly uh, less anxiety-inducing conversation, we have our next topic, which uh, is on the topic of the National AI Research Cloud. So the article we're talking about is titled AWS, Google, and Mozilla Back National AI Research Cloud Bill in Congress. And this one is from VentureBeat. And it describes how a total of 20 organizations, including AWS, Google, NVIDIA, and more, joined schools like Stanford and Ohio State in calling for a national AI research cloud that would allow researchers in academia to access compute and data sets that are currently only available to huge companies like Google. So there's this strange imbalance where companies like Google and Facebook have massive, massive computing resources and run experiments that are truly astounding. And even, uh, you know, larger universities like Stanford or Berkeley or other universities uh, that have computational resources still have much less. So this uh, initiative is basically proposing that there be a national cloud uh, so that researchers who don't have such resources can access that scale and uh, do that kind of research. I wonder, Sharon, how much compute do you use? Have you had to try and scale up to any massive amount of computation at all? Or uh, has it mostly been like single GPUs? Oh, man, uh, what a great question to ask at a great time. Uh, I actually just built my own deep learning rig because I can't handle how bad the computer is <laughs> in the lab. Um, but we, we do have 100 GPUs. Uh, they are from five years ago, though, so they're not high. I wouldn't say they're as high performing as nearly as high performing as the ones now. Um, so, yeah, this is really exciting. Um, I'm curious how it'll go. Of course, uh, I think it sounds very promising and um I think it could actually help with driving research forward as I imagine that this would be, um, this would largely be backing researchers um, from maybe like government grants or credits in some way to use this cloud. Uh, however, I am also a bit, a little bit skeptical on how it's going to work logistically and in terms of the usability of uh, the government creating some kind of 
cloud interface does frighten me. Uh, and I wonder how they would manage that, especially when all the different cloud players are part of this. So whose platform do you usually, would you use or are you going to create your own? And both of those sound uh, like there will be different types of roadblocks. Uh, one will be technical if the government creates their own cloud and the other one sounds uh, a bit political among the different cloud providers. So um, curious to curious to learn more about uh, where this will head. Uh, yeah, and but the article does say you know leaders at Stanford uh, joined actually more than twenty other universities in sending a joint letter about this to President Trump in Congress last year, backing this uh, national AI research cloud. Yeah, from our perspective, I think it's fun to note that. Actually, the uh, directors of the Stanford Human-Centered AI Institute, uh, Dr. Fei Fei Li and uh, Dr. John Echemendi, were the first to propose it. And I guess my hope is uh, if academia and industry and people who basically need the sort of cloud uh, formed the push and, and started it, hopefully as... It, if it does get implemented, then those parties are uh, present to make it usable and make it useful. And I definitely do sympathize with you in that uh, I do have access to a compute cluster with some amount of GPUs and some amount of CPUs, and I've had to scale up to you know many machines in parallel for uh, my research and. Uh, I've been able to get by with what I have, but uh, at the same time, I've definitely also hit, you know, kind of the upper limit on what I can use. And I had to sort of scrape together my own set of scripts and techniques for using the cluster. So maybe if this does happen, you know, there'll become more of a standardized interface and more of a kind of support for a particular way to launch machine learning and AI on, on large cloud computing. Yeah, potentially this will be it. So we shall see. I wonder what's going to happen close to deadlines. Yeah, no, there are going to be a lot of issues if many universities are trying to use this at once. Uh, how are you going to try and allocate resources? Uh, it's hard enough to do it within one university or one set of labs. So um, I guess, yeah, let's see. And let's hope that uh, they do pull through with something that we can use to do more exciting research. So our last article uh, sounds counterintuitive. It is uh, from Vox titled, How Deep Fakes Could Actually Do Some Good. Uh, so as a reminder, deep fakes are uh, AI generative models that are able to uh, essentially create fake um, fake-looking images, fake-looking videos, um, even fake-sounding audio. Uh, so essentially, they can, they can create this mask and be completely fake. These are, they can create fake people uh, from in images. Um, and the summary from this article was that the LGBTQ population in Chechnya uh, actually faces quite significant persecution. And there's a new HBO documentary titled Welcome to Chechnya that lets survivors actually share their stories by using deepfake-like technology to conceal the survivors' identities. And they do this by overlaying volunteers' voices onto survivors' faces for the camera. 
And so the goal is to retain the emotion of the subjects who are speaking. Um, so actions like blinking and like changing their jaw and having them smile, um, or, or very sad. Um, but also communicate, uh, what they're saying. And so this is, um, a, a huge push for people to use a deep fake avatar. So essentially cloak themselves. And there are startups doing this like a DID and, uh, Alethea AI. And this is a possible emerging use case or industry for synthetic media, um, essentially enabling anonymity. And this will likely impact how we also regulate deepfakes if it can actually be used for good uh, in some sense. Andre, what do you think of this? I think, uh, I mean, this is pretty cool, obviously. And um, it does uh, speak to an argument that some researchers have had, which is like, why do you even develop the technology or um, why do we dem democratize the ability to make deep fakes? And one of the cases has been that, well, there are actually very useful applications of this technology that aren't negative. And I think this is a great example of one of them. Uh, I was also curious uh, or found it interesting to see another article titled deep fakes are becoming the hot new corporate training tool from Wired, which uh, had a sort of related topic of how companies are now using kind of deep fake-esque technology for, let's say, harmless uh, use cases. So creating uh, images for marketing purposes uh, with uh, greater diversity that maybe small companies cannot afford uh, because you would have to hire many different people, something like that. So. In combination, I think these are interesting articles showcasing uh, some positive applications of this. Uh, otherwise, let's say, I don't know, um, scary sounding technology. Right, definitely. I think up until now, deepfakes people have approached with caution, uh, obviously showcasing its worst side uh, through political manipulation. Um, but I think uh, these applications definitely start to shine through as enabling voices to speak out, um, but but also enabling people to, to maintain that anonymity, um, especially if it's for their safety. Uh, and I, I think that is very powerful. Uh, obviously, it's a fine line. So we'll be thinking about this as we move forward with regulation in this space. Uh, yeah, but it is very promising and it is... Um, very great that this, that this is, uh, definitely, definitely a way forward. And actually in the article, they point out that women have used, uh, virtual masks on Snapchat, some of which are powered by, uh, AI generative models, of course, also very powerful graphics models, um, to share their experience of sexual assaults through video without real revealing their identities. And I think that is also a really powerful, uh, application. Yeah, yeah. To your to your point of um, needing to take this into account into regulation, I also think it's interesting that the article itself also notes that currently there is no law, no federal law regulating production of deepfakes, although people are already looking into it and thinking about it. And so um, this article, to quote it, it says, as technology becomes more prominent, we should expect more people to argue for legitimate use cases or at the very least applications that are not as terrifying as the deepfakes we are more familiar with. And that will ine inevitably complicate how we choose to regulate them. 
So yeah, on the whole, clearly this is positive, and it also points to the difficulty of reckoning with the negative applications. You can't just detect any deep fake and kind of delete it, maybe because there are useful instances of using it. Um, but at least it's good that we can see some positive applications of AI and not more sort of scary dystopian stuff as we've been talking about lately. Right, definitely. And of course, um, anonymity has always been a double-edged sword. So uh, anonymous chat apps, rooms have always, uh, I've seen, been very good for some groups and of course, um, in, in a safe space for many people, but also uh, has enabled quite a bit of harassment and abuse um, across the internet and has been quite toxic as well. So uh, it, it definitely is a fine line of safety and also security, I would say. Uh, so uh, obviously no laws yet, but this does make the line more gray. And I'm glad people are looking into significantly more positive applications of this technology. And on that note, uh, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Scanner Today's Let's Talk AI podcast. You can find the articles we discussed here today and subscribe to a weekly newsletter with similar ones at scanetoday.com. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to leave us a rating if you like the show. Be sure to tune in next week. week.